Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 17 as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at chapter 17 in its entirety today. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with the text this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would help us because we are like the many nations that we have been reading about. We think religion is a good idea, but we really don't want any authority over our lives. And this Word represents absolute authority. And so, Lord, where our hearts are leaning toward our own devices and our own authority, we pray that you would break that down. And Lord, that you would cause us to lean more and more toward you. That you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to be convicted of our sin, that we would be led to the truth, that we might walk in your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this passage today, I began to think about the video game industry. I know that's a weird connection, but just hear me out. I'm a video gamer. If you did not know that, I've been playing games for almost as long as I could walk. And the last 10 years or so, there's this new type of video game that has become kind of the norm. And I call them, uh, pejoratively, along with many others, pay-to-win games. And uh, they don't call themselves that, of course. That would be bad. But it's a label that old gamers like myself have given them. In the old days, see, you played a game and you spent all this time building up your character or your city or getting to this certain level. And it was a real work that you did. I mean, you may be thinking, you're not actually doing it. For us, it was a big deal. It was a, something that you labored for and you, and you earned your way. It was kind of a status symbol to have achieved a certain level at a game or to get a certain weapon or item or whatever, whatever it meant, you'd earned this thing and you wore it proudly as a gamer. All of those things are gone today because you can just simply log on to a game and buy the coolest thing or the highest level, the most powerful thing. You don't have to work for it. You can just click and cha-ching, you're a winner. Must be nice. Old school gamers like myself hate this sort of system because kids today don't know what it's like to have to work for those items and those levels and to really toil and labor your way to the hard things because gaming is hard work or it used to be or maybe it never has been, whatever. What does this have to do with Isaiah chapter 17? On our text today, we're going to meet a nation that has forgotten the God of their salvation. They have forgotten what the Lord has done for them. They were attempting to get blessings quickly without trusting the Lord to take care of them. Though Damascus is the nation that's mentioned in verse 1 and as dealt with throughout the text, it is their ally in Israel, the northern kingdom, that is really in view here. We're going to consider Damascus and Israel As we look at this text today, we'll see how we too, and this is important because we're not talking about these abstracted things from thousands of years ago. We're talking about our own hearts and our own minds as well. We too have forgotten our God. 
we are less mindful of the God of our salvation than we should be. This should turn us straight back to Jesus, of course, which is always the subject of our talk. Right where we should be headed, whether you're in Christ already or you're an unbelieving person, you should be headed to Christ as well because He is the God of your salvation. It should turn us away from anything else that we are trusting, especially anything that promises immediate blessings because life doesn't always work that way. Actually, it just never does. So as we consider this text, we're going to look at three main ideas, the judgment against Damascus, the charge against Israel, and then the day of the Lord's deliverance. And so with that, let's look together at our text, Isaiah chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 17, starting at verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroer are deserted, and they will be for flocks which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus. The remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean, and it shall... Be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look upon the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look at what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be the desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore... Though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom on the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. All the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. All the roar of nations, they roar the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, there is there are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us, and the lot of those who plunder us. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So a little bit about Damascus, kind of like we've been doing each week as we've dealt with a different nation. Damascus is actually the modern day capital of Syria, which was the capital of Syria back then as well. Damascus, in fact, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on earth. 
stretching as far back as like 2000 B.C., which is around the time that God went to Abraham and said, follow me. So it's been around a little bit. So Damascus has this long history. And before we start to like fill that idea with all these good things, there's a long history of idol worship, disobedience to the God of the Bible and His law. I say that to make sure that we understand that no nation or individual is outside the scope of God's judgment before we come to this text and think, well, why is he messing with Syria? Because Syria doesn't follow him. They're unable to comply with his laws, therefore they deserve judgment. And that's important for us to remember that and to continue to remember that. We have already talked a little bit about Syria in the opening chapters of this book. They formed an alliance, remember, with the northern kingdom in an attempt to thwart Assyria, this coming force from the north. They did indeed ally with the northern kingdom, if you remember. And they attacked the southern kingdom, Judah, on several occasions, actually. And there was this prolonged war between them. However, they eventually, they, Damascus, eventually met their match in 732 B.C. after a long siege from Assyria. Damascus is still around today, but it never really stood on its own as its own civilization ever again. It's kind of been a little bit of everything. Just watch the news. Though Damascus is again around, we don't see them at all like they used to be. Even today, it remains this war-torn region. Just watch the news. Influences with many larger factions coming in, causing trouble. This current conflict is especially bad. Half a million dead. In just a few years, many more Christians have had to seek asylum from the various reaches of the world, including our own country. And so that brings us to the first point, the judgment against Damascus. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. We'll start off pretty quickly here. Uh, Damascus is being turned into a heap. Its cities will become deserted. All is a direct result, of course, of the Assyrian purge that is moving through the land, almost like a giant steamroller that is rolling through all of the surrounding nations. It's interesting that the writer here, Isaiah, chose to first talk to us about a nation to the north and then one to the west in Philistia and then one in the east in Syria or in Edom, and now again in the north in Syria. And next week we'll be talking about a nation to the south. And so really Judah is on all sides being come at by this Assyrian juggernaut. So it's it's pretty tough to be Judah. They're only going they're going to stand alone as this unconquered nation eventually. And that speaks to the Lord's long suffering with that nation. Of course, and then a hundred years or so they'll be conquered themselves. Verse 3, the fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And so here you have this mix that I was talking about earlier between Israel or Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and Syria. Their fates became very closely intertwined because they allied Together, their cities will disappear. If you remember, we read from 2 Kings 17 earlier as we were in this study. 
And 2 Kings 17 outlines this idea of how the northern kingdom went away, where the ten tribes of the northern kingdom were all carried away into exile. And if you look at any timeline of the Old Testament, you see it stop at 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom for those ten tribes. And they're further in Scripture known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And so when this says, the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, what is that glory? They're going to become just like them, a lost tribe. The glory of Israel is no glory to have at all. We see that in verses 4 through 6. In that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And then he goes on to compare Jacob to a field that had been harvested or a tree that had just been harvested. It's a very vivid picture for me growing up in the the boot hill of Missouri where you're basically surrounded by fields at all times, no matter where you are. And it reminds me of like a bean field right after it's been combined. If you walk through a bean field right after it's been combined, you will see the occasional bean stalk here or there, and it might have a few soybeans on it. But for the most part, the entire field has been completely decimated. There are a few beans out there, maybe for the livestock to, or for the wildlife to eat. And in those days, it was actually the law to leave a few things around for the poor folks to come and eat. But you get the picture. Completely decimated. Picked clean. Read Syria's history. And you find that out. They've never really recovered. They've always been a nation that others want to take over and are constantly doing so. I think this provides a very vivid picture of someone who's looking to other things besides the Lord to find their strength and their fulfillment. What does it become for you? A picked over field, a wasteland. It may look like things. It may look like there was maybe something there at one time, but it's currently nothing. And so what is the only correct response to that? Verse 7 directs us there. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look upon the Holy One of Israel. Just as an aside here, John chapter 12 tells us that the Holy One of Israel is Jesus and this Uh, equates the the Holy One of Israel with the Maker. Um, If you're looking for another place to find where Jesus is indeed Son of God, second person of the Trinity, look no further than right here. Verse 8, He will not look to the altars, the work of His hands. He will not look on what His fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. What's going on here? He's turning away from those things that he thought would work, and he's turning to the Holy One of Israel, his Maker. He is repenting. Man will turn away from the things that he's made, turn to the one that made him. That is repentance in a nutshell. Look away from those idols rather than look to the one true God. I think here underlines the fact for us as believers today, that in order to see Jesus, what must we see first? Our own sin. Our own need of Him. Man does not come naturally to Jesus 
Because man is naturally dead in his sins. He doesn't know that he's a sinner because he's completely immersed in them. He is by nature a child of wrath. Sons and daughters of disobedience, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. In Galatians 4, Paul talks about this idea again, saying that we were once slaves outside of Christ. We were once slaves to the elementary principles of this world. In short, saying that we were bound by the gods and standards that we had created by our own hands. That are no gods and standards at all. But because of the work in the spirit of the spirit in our lives, we have been made alive. We have been set free. We are no longer judged according to our lawlessness, but according to Christ's righteousness. Turning away from our idols, turning to the Holy One of Israel. Notice that is something that we do in response to the work that He has done in us. Repentance is a requirement that we all must do, but repentance is also a gift that is given to us in Christ. And we've seen this in all the chapters of this section about all the nations that we've looked at because of the plan of God is not only to redeem Israel, not only to redeem His chosen race, but also to redeem the entire world through the one who would bring blessings to the whole world. He came to set His children free. Who are His children? They're from all over. They're from Assyria. They're from Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Syria. All nations will have His children. Yet it's Israel who had been with Him the whole time. Israel has been with Him from the beginning. Which brings us to the next section. The charge against Israel, verses 9 through 11. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. Why? For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge pretty tough. Why were the strong cities to be made desolate? Because of the children of Israel. Because they had forgotten the God of their salvation. Because they had forgotten the rock of their refuge. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Speaking of since the beginning, this is just about near that for Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32 to kind of catch you up to speed, Moses is on his way out as a leader. He's going to die soon, and he has commissioned Joshua as a new leader for the nation of Israel. And he is telling them to take this book of the law that they have been given and to follow it, but yet they haven't done so. And so Moses is now singing this song, which is basically the entirety of chapter 32 concerning this idea. And I'm going to start with verse 4, and I'm going to read for a little bit. And and just pay attention to some of the imagery here as I read along. I think this is very important, especially as we tie it back to Isaiah 17. You see that in the first two words here, verse 4. 
the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him, his children. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Notice the command of Moses here. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, the nation that he set aside from himself, is his people, Jacob, Israel, is his allotted heritage. And I love this section here, starting in verse 10. This tells us how much the Lord loves his people. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock, the oil out of the flinty rock, Curds from the herd and milk from the flock and the fat of the lambs, the rams of Bashan and goats were the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. He took care of his people. What did they do? Verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. And you grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that have never known, to new gods that have only come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Moses is singing this song to a people that would easily forget the Lord. He saw it in his day. He forgot the Lord himself. He knew, so he called them to remember. Remember the old days. Ask your father. Ask his father. Ask the elders. Remember those things that the Lord has done for you. And instead, what do they do? They grew fat and they kicked. They grew complacent and they complained. They chased after other gods that were no gods at all. They were unmindful of the rock that bore them, the God that made them into a nation to begin with. Back to Isaiah chapter 17 verse 10. What does Isaiah also charge those people with? You have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your 
refuge, that rock that took care of you. Instead, what were they doing? They were doing something with plants here in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of the stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and they make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. It's an interesting tie-in here. The fertility gods in that area, or cults in that area, and there were lots of them. The ashram is being the, the most common of them by far. And one of the ways that they worshipped their fertility gods in their temples was to take these really young plants and to force them to bloom way early. They would mess with the plants to make them bloom. And consequently, what did that make those plants do really quickly? Die. And so as a sacrifice to their gods, they would cause these plants to go through their life cycle really quickly quickly in order to appease their gods, which were no gods at all. And so for Israel, and understand this, they had in their history, they have this history of God doing things that we can't even fathom for them. And even as Assyria is taking out everyone surrounding them, they're still not quite getting it. Rather than wait on their maker, the rock of their refuge, they went to some pagan temple and forced plants to grow so they might get some, some sort of concocted blessing. Almost like a kid buying their way to the top of a game's leaderboard. It makes no sense. And it's just silly. This is something I think that we can all relate to in one way or another when it comes to our faith because we do love a quick fix. We oftentimes look at our faith and think, hmm, if I could just have that faith that I first had. And so we do things maybe that are inherently good things. You know, maybe read a book. Hey, I read this book and it really helped me. Oh, let me read that book then. Maybe it'll help me. Or we go to some sort of conference and that conference like gets us feeling all pumped up, kind of like church camp for adults. And we're excited about it. And we spring us back to life and it convinces us of some kind of new idea or new strategy that no one's ever come up with, which should be our first uh, clue that it's probably not good, but it's not what we do. And of course, there's nothing wrong with books and conferences. Absolutely not. There's some very good conferences and very good books that are helpful for us in our faith. But leave it up to us to take something that's good and make it bad. Because that's kind of what we do. We think that we're doing something. Then we can affect our faith just by doing more of that thing because we're all legalists at heart. There are deep implications here that I want us to understand. The application here is don't go to conferences. We're being called to remember. And remembering is not simply a mental exercise. Because those sorts of things, again, cause us to trust in ourselves. Oh, I've got an easy way to remember. I can just put it on my fridge. No, that's not what we're being called to do. Many times I've used this the example of the person who trusts in that one time that they went to the altar at their church camp or they prayed the prayer that the VBS guy prayed and that they now that now affords them the ability to live apart from Christ, to live apart from the body of Christ. Because of that little bit of insurance that they made for themselves, they now can do their own thing. 
or the person who used to feel good about their faith. But since they don't feel good anymore, they don't do that church stuff anymore. Because it no longer makes them feel good. And so maybe they go to a place where they will feel good. There's lots of places that will make them feel good. Some of them call themselves churches. For some, that is remembering, that remembering is maybe the act of attending church. As if sitting here and singing and listening and writing a check once in a while makes you something more than you're not. Both Isaiah and Moses, as they call us to remember, they're not calling us to just simply remember something like you remember where you put your keys when you had them last. When we forget God, we are not just that time I forgot about Him. We are forsaking Him. We are turning against Him and to other things. Every single time we sin, that's what we do. This makes both you and I guilty. No amount of that one time will save us. We have to turn back then to the rock of our refuge, the God of our salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. He's it. Jesus is the rock of our refuge. We take refuge in Him first and foremost and understand that this refuge is not simply refuge from this old horrible world. It is that. But refuge in Christ is first and foremost refuge from a Father that seeks justice and will make desolation of anyone who trusts in themselves rather than Him. We seek refuge in Christ because we can't do it all the time. We're bad at it, just like Israel was. In Christ, we have been forgiven, have been, past tense, for each time that we have and will forsake Him. And I know that doesn't make sense, and it shouldn't. Because that's the kind of love and mercy that He has for us. And it's outside of our understanding, really. It's for anyone who forgets their Maker. We are all to turn back to the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by man by which man can be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, can find refuge today. Turn to Him again. Never stop turning to Him. That brings me to the third point. The day of the Lord's wrath. Verses 12 through 14. Ah, the thunders of many peoples. They thunder like the thunders of the thundering of the sea. They roar the roar of the nations. They roar at the roaring of mighty waters. Get this picture of this nation that is loud and rolling around, kind of like Assyria was. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and whirling dust before the storm. I love this picture because it shows us that there will be a day when our enemies are defeated. 
There has been a day when our enemies were defeated. The nations roar, but yet they will become like chaff blowing in the wind. Before the Lord, the enemies of his people are nothing. We have those enemies here on earth, and they sometimes seem like they're increasing all the time, and we get that. But we shouldn't live in fear because they're like chaff that blows before the Lord. The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs as the nations plot against him. Here we read that in Psalm 2. But those final enemies, the real enemies, sin and death, Jesus dealt with once and for all on the cross through his resurrection. They will one day be thrown into the lake of fire as we read in the book of Revelation. In Christ, we are free to live as if the maker of the world is the captain of our team because he is. He has won the battle. We, his people, get all the spoils and we await that day when we'll be with him forever and eternity. However, while we're here, let us be ones who ever serve him, proclaiming to the nations that there is a king who offers them hope also from their enemies. So in conclusion... Let us cast down our idols that we have constructed. Let us remember again what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let us not forget. Let us proclaim the truth to a lost world so that they may experience the freedom that we have in Christ. Let's go down in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we, like so many nations before and so many that will come after, we have forgotten our Maker. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to turn our hearts back to you. That you would cling to us even when we're desperate to get loose. We are thankful that you do that. Lord, that you would help us to not only turn our hearts towards you, that we might love you more and more, but also, Lord, to proclaim the truth to the nations that don't know you so that they might know you and glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.